Uh, you can open up your Bible to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Uh, but I want to take a couple minutes, uh, not that it'll take you that long to find it, but I want to take a couple minutes just on this unique Sunday uh, to share about some of our upcoming plans as a church family of how we are looking to operate over the next few weeks uh, as a church family. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, we're kind of in an unusual time where we have been meeting outside since the end of May. Uh, so it's been several months. God has blessed us with a lot of nice Sundays. This is a little chillier than normal, uh, but it's still beautiful, and it's been nice to be out in God's creation to worship with you as a church family. Um, but we also had been planning up until fairly recently, we'd been planning for this to be our last Sunday outside, and then next Sunday we were going to be moving indoors uh, to start worshiping inside. But uh, as we think about that, we actually have decided, and we've communicated this out to many of you, to have a few more Sundays outside uh, because God thus far has blessed us with, with nice weather and ability to gather. The main reason we're extending it is because uh, as soon as we move inside, we're going to need to be more spread out, and we're going to have to have multiple services, which we're probably going to have at 9 and 11 starting in November. That's going to be when we start to move in. But the main reason we like meeting outside is we can all come together at once, uh, even as a visual reminder, a, a auditory reminder that we are one spiritual family. Not that we won't feel that when we're in different services and whatnot, but when we can gather together at once, we want to do that. Uh, even if it means we'll be a little chilly, uh, I'm considering ideas. If you have ideas of even maybe we could have some bonfires out here or something during October. If it gets a little chilly, we could do things like that. Uh, Jesus made a fire for his disciples and had fish for breakfast with them one time after he was raised from the dead. Fish for breakfast sounds gross. I don't think we would ever do that, uh, but maybe we'll do some bonfires, things like that, if it gets pretty chilly. But we are planning for right now to look at November 1st as the day we'll we we'll start to meet inside again for worship. Uh, that we'll plan to have two services, socially distanced at 9 and at 11. Uh, we are continually reevaluating and thinking about the mask requirement. If things are as they are right now, we will be re requiring people to wear them as they come in if they're above 8. But we're continually reevaluating that as situation changes in our state, even as rules and regulations change for our state. So we'll keep you posted on that uh, as that Sunday uh, draws closer. But we're going to continue to meet outside uh, for the next few Sundays. One thing I want to mention before we get to Daniel 5 and relating to this, though, is that as we uh, go back inside, one of the things that I have missed the most of gathering as a church family has been our ability to have classes and nurseries for the youngest among us. Uh, I have loved having them be here and be outside and be able to kind of walk around if they need to and whatnot, but we love as a church, we prioritize what we say reaching the generations with the gospel of Christ, that we want to take what's been passed to us as teenagers, as adults that we believe and pass it down in time uh, to the kids who are coming behind us. And so we're going to get the opportunity to start doing that again on November 1st. And so we're going to have nurseries for two years old and down throughout the entirety of those services. Uh, and then we're going to have classes that could be dismissed mid-service for those who are three years old up through kindergarten. And so it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for them to be instructed more specifically as kids. And it's a wonderful opportunity for all of us collectively as a church family to say, we want to take seriously the call to reach the next generation with the gospel of Christ. And so I would commend, I would challenge, I would try to 
I compel each of you, uh, if you are adults within our church family, uh, to take ownership of that collective responsibility and not just leave it to other people in the church, those who are more like kid people or those who are more uh, yeah, like kid people. We all should be kid people. <laughs> I think I know what people mean when they say that, but we have a collective responsibility as a church to pass the gospel down in time. And so we're going to need a lot of people to pull this off, being in two services and having numerous classes and nurseries, but it's also an opportunity for a lot of people. And so uh, we made a, a page on our website. It's ChristCovenant.org forward slash count me in no spaces anything like that where we would encourage you today we're even going to send out some links later today to all of you who we have email addresses to ask you if you could let us know if you have kids if you will plan to have them be in a class or a nursery so we can start to anticipate numbers and then also a place where you can say man count me in as a volunteer i might not know exactly what that looks like yet but i want to help i want to be part of reaching the generations with the gospel of christ even as we start this back indoors and so i'd encourage you to head to that url don't do it now because i want you to listen to the sermon uh, but at the end of the sermon and later this morning later this afternoon head there and let us know that we can count your kid in uh, or children in or that we can count you in as well and serving as a volunteer. Jordan Weddle, our children's ministries director, is going to be at a table right here in the middle after the service. If you'd like to verbally let him know those things or ask questions of him, uh, he'd love to talk with you about that. But thank you in advance for letting us know that we can count you in for that. I'm excited even for my own kids uh, to be able to start to move back towards having those nurseries and classes for them. All right, have you found Daniel 5? I bet you have. Uh, I, I am going to try my best to keep these papers from flying away, by the way, so you can try to keep yours on the right page of your Bible. Uh, but we're going to be reading Daniel 5 today. Uh, we've been going through this book of Daniel the last several weeks, and we come to this chapter. We're doing them one chapter at a time. And I wanted to, to preface the reading and preaching of this chapter by introducing a, a phrase that some of you are familiar with, a phrase that has, especially within the last decade, become kind of common to use in our culture. This phrase that some people use of calling a company too big to fail. Uh, there, there's, especially in the financial sector, there are these companies that have lent out so much money to people, given out so many mortgages, have so many people dependent on them for finance, uh, that they have become so massive as companies and have so many fingers into our nation's pocketbooks that it becomes almost impossible to imagine them failing as a company. That if things started to go sideways for them, if they started to kind of deteriorate as a company, uh, it's hard to even fathom the massive effect that that could have on our society as a whole. And so people start to say, well, they're too big to fail. If things start to go south for them, we need or we should intervene for them. We should bail them out as a government, as a society, because the consequences are just too bad if we let them fail. And what happens then, or what can happen at least, if a company ever reaches that status, where they know there's going to be bailouts, where they know there's going to be a safety net underneath them, is that it can lead their leaders, their CEOs, their shot callers, to be a bit more reckless than they probably should be, uh, to be willing to make bad decisions, to be willing to, to run some things into the ground, to take bigger salaries than they should, things like that, because they know they will get bailed out. They don't have any fear of failure. They don't have fear of consequence. And so they indulge. They can do things that they otherwise should not. So these companies, people will use this phrase that they are too big to fail. But they're just a little glimpse into uh, what we sometimes think about when it comes to kingdoms of the world. There are many kingdoms that have come and gone, and even some that exist right now, maybe even one that we live in, 
uh, that people start to think that these kingdoms are too big to fail, that they're too big to fall. The Babylonian Empire, which we've been reading about in the book of Daniel thus far, and that Daniel has been living in, is one of those kingdoms that people started to think was too big to fail, too big to fall. Their empire stretched over most of the known world that they knew of at that time. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, God gave one of their kings, Nebuchadnezzar, this vision of, or this dream about himself as a ruler, and it, it was like he was a tree. And if you remember that, it was like this tree that was so big that people from all over the world could see it. This is a vast, vast empire, the most powerful empire in the world at that time. Their capital city was called Babylon also. That was where the name came from. And it had thick walls that could not be penetrated. That in the ancient world, there was no technology to ram through them. And the walls were so high that there was no technology that they really, that enemies had to get over them. So they felt secure. They even had this giant river, the Euphrates River, that they figured out in building the wall how to have it run under their wall and into their, their massive city so they could grow crops and have animals and whatnot where they could sustain themselves for years on end even if they needed to while enemies were outside of the city gate. The Babylonians and their rulers felt secure. They felt impenetrable. They felt too big to fail. And as a result, they felt like they could do whatever they pleased. Felt like there was no consequence coming. But what we're going to see as we read Daniel 5 is that that was not the case. As we get to the end of Daniel 5 especially, we're going to see Babylon fall. And we're going to see their king be murdered. And what we're going to see is this isn't just a story about Babylon. This isn't just a story about their king, Belshazzar, but this is a story for us as well. Because Babylon is to represent the kingdoms of this world, even the ones we live in. The ones that exist now, the ones that have existed, the ones that will exist. And it should lead us to the question of, is there a lasting kingdom? Is there a king who will rule forever? Is there a kingdom where there is no threat of failure, where there will be no failure? And we will see by the end of this morning that there indeed is. So if you found, me, found Daniel 5 with me, I want to read that for you. Uh, we're going to read a huge chunk of it. I'm going to read up through near the end of the chapter, and I'm going to leave a couple of the verses that we'll hold off till later in the sermon. But I'm going to read most of this chapter. And if you've been with us in Daniel, you've probably noticed that these the book of Daniel is not just a comprehensive history. It's not telling every detail of everything that happened in Babylon. It's kind of giving these snapshots, one chapter at a time, of these significant events. So sometimes there'd be decades between them. And we're going to be to the next one that Daniel wants to mention and record for us as the people of God. It's going to be decades, probably at least years after the end of Daniel 4. We don't know exactly how long, uh, but we're going to pick up this next snapshot and we're going to see that while we're going to see that while there are enemies literally outside the city of Babylon seeking to take it over, we're going to see what was happening inside the wall, and more specifically inside the walls of the king's palace, what was going on that very day. So read along with me, Daniel chapter 5, I'll go all the way through verse 29. So it's a lot, so follow along with me. There's a lot that Daniel is trying to communicate to us, and you're going to see that where we get the phrase, the writing on the wall. Okay, so Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. 
Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, this is an ironic statement right here, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. 
He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, Daniel continues, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. We'll pause there, and we'll read the last few verses here in just a bit. That was a lot. I want to recount the story. Some of you are familiar with this, but I want to recount what took place here just so we're on the same page before we think of its significance and its relevance for us today. What's going on here is we have the king of Babylon. He's called uh, Belshazzar. He is the, called the son of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Uh, that in the ancient world was a term that could be the actual son or grandson or great-grandson. So we think at least he's a couple generations removed from Nebuchadnezzar. And he seems to be the second in power in Babylon. Did you notice he offers the third seat of power uh, to anyone uh, who can give him the interpretation? What most likely seems to be is that his dad, his name was Nabonidus, uh, was elsewhere at the time. We don't know exactly why. Maybe he was off fighting a battle. Uh, maybe some suggest he was ruling from a separate location. But Belshazzar is the king in the city of Babylon. And he throws a party. Uh, with the lords of Babylon, they're called. So he gathers them together, about a thousand of them, a, a large number of uh, these friends, these fellow rulers of Babylon, and the wine is flowing. Uh, he, he is indulging himself. He's letting them indulge themselves. And then in a great act of pride that even Nebuchadnezzar had not been willing to do, that the other kings that preceded him had not been willing to do, he called for them to bring to him and to his friends the vessels from the temple of God in Jerusalem. That when Babylon had taken over the Israelites and conquered uh, their capital city of Jerusalem, they had taken some of those cups and vessels of gold and of silver from the temple and they had brought them to Babylon, but nobody had had the audacity to use them yet. But Belshazzar has no such limits on himself. He asks them to bring out these vessels so that him and his friends can drink from them. But as you know, it's not just even drinking from them. He had them drink from them while they are worshiping the gods of Babylon. 
that, that he, it's in a sense like he's taunting the God of Israel, saying, like, you are nothing. Like, I'll drink from the stuff of your house. We plundered your house. I'm going to use it in my house and just celebrate my gods. And then God crashes the party, doesn't he? God sends this hand without a body. We don't know exactly what that looked like. You can imagine with Halloween coming up, we see all sorts of weird, strange things people try to mimic. This was a real thing, a real hand, a disembodied hand that starts to write words on a wall. It's by the lampstand so it can be seen. God wanted it to be seen by Belshazzar. And his color changes, right? Verse 6 says that his color changes, kind of like whatever happens to me whenever I have to get blood drawn. My color changes in my face. I almost pass out. My knees kind of knock. That's what's happening with him. We don't know what's all going on in his mind, but he's afraid. He's alarmed. I would be too if I saw that. And he inquires with the wise men of his kingdom to tell him what these words mean. Obviously, they're intended to communicate something to him. But he brings in all these men, and none of them can tell him what it means. But then the queen, maybe his mom, uh, reminds him that there is this old man, Daniel, who in generations gone by, he could interpret dreams. He, he was even recognized by your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, long ago. Bring him in. He could tell you what it means. I'm, I'm sure he could. And so Belshazzar calls for Daniel to come who seems like he's been long since forgotten. He brings Daniel in, and, and Daniel, uh, he offers, he's first, Belshazzar is very condescending to him. He calls him one of the exiles. This would have been generations before, but he still identifies him as, yeah, you're one of the people we took over and brought here. Like, you're our subjects. And like, I've heard of you, like that you could do such and such. I almost doubt that he thought that he could. He's condescending toward him, but he offers him gifts, right? If he can interpret, he says, I'll give you a robe of purple, I'll give you gold chains, I'll give you a third seat at the table of the kingdom, which that makes me think maybe he didn't even think he could do it, because I doubt he was wanting to give up all that power. But Daniel refuses the gifts, doesn't he? He says essentially, I don't need these, I don't want these, keep them for yourself. He refuses the gift, and then he rebukes the king for the pride that he sees in him. There is no pleasantries uh, from Daniel towards Belshazzar here. There is very little respect offered toward him. He just cuts, toward, cuts to the chase with him. And he reminds him of what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He reminds him that the guy who is more powerful than you, who is greater than you, Belshazzar, God cut him down. God showed him and proved to him that he reigns over the kingdoms of the earth, and you have forgotten that. You know those facts. You know that God did that, but that's just a long-forgotten story to you, and you are lifting yourself up just like he did. And he gets, he gets very firm with him and says, you are lifting yourself up against the God who holds your breath in his hands. You are taunting him. You are, uh, you are seeking to, to gloat over him. And he is your creator. Like He is the one who brought you into existence. He is the one who can take your life. And you are lifting up yourself against him. And then he interprets the words on the wall. I think he knew what they said the whole time. He walked in the room and sees what they're doing. He, I think, quickly probably saw the words and knew exactly what they meant. But now he tells them, 
essentially, in summary, he says that these words on the wall mean numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Four words that had a lot of punch to them. Where he's telling him that your days as an individual are numbered and over. The days of your kingdom are numbered and over. You have been weighed, there's judgment coming to you. You have been placed on the balances of God's scales of justice and you've been found wanting. And your kingdom is being divided. Like you who have clamored for power and been gloating here, your kingdom is about to be divided. And then note this, Belshazzar, I think he doesn't even care. Did you notice that? I don't think he even really believes it. Because did you notice verse 29, it says he gives a command and Daniel's given this purple robe and he gives him these gold chains. And then he proclaims, he makes a proclamation that Daniel should be the third ruler in the kingdom. When he just was told your kingdom's done. Like, it's over. He's st- he, can't, he doesn't get it. He, he's so prideful. He's like, yeah, right. Like, I will give power to who I want. I'll give you this stuff. I have all these gifts I can give to you. We'll see the end of the story in a moment. But I, I want to pause here, and I want to remember that as you zoom out in the rest of the Bible, and as time goes on, you see the ministry of Jesus, the writings of his apostles, we start to see that Babylon... And the kings of Babylon are used as a picture, as a metaphor of all the kingdoms of the earth. All the earthly rulers that would come after them. All the things that they could offer, all the things that they could provide. They are are called sometimes even Babylon. But I think we see in this text of Daniel 5 how hollow and weak the kingdoms of this earth are. And the kings of this earth are. And it should have bearing on us. It should teach us today of how to look at the kingdoms of our earth right now. The kingdoms we're part of or that we may be part of someday. And I think we see in Daniel 5 and we can learn uh, in our day of the kingdoms of our earth three things that the kingdoms or the kings of this earth can provide or think that they can provide. I'd say it this way. These three things that the kingdoms and the kings of this world offer are they offer a false security, they offer fleeting pleasures, and they offer faux gifts, F-A-U-X, not F-O-E, faux gifts. So they offer false security, they offer fleeting pleasures, and they offer faux gifts. The kingdoms of the world offer false security, don't they? Sometimes for us as human beings. God made us, you see it in Belshazzar, you probably see it in your own heart, he made us with a longing for a sense of security. That, that we were made to live with God in peace and harmony and unity, but that has been long since broken as we've left the Garden of Eden, but we still have this longing for a sense of security, for stability. But we're vulnerable people, and we try to deny it. We try to grasp for where can I find security? Who can promise me security in this world? And Belshazzar and his friends, they thought that they had found it. They thought that they were secure, didn't they? Uh, They thought because of their kingdom, they thought that they were secure from their earthly enemies, and they thought that they were secure from God. They've been lulled into this false sense of security. They, They had literally enemies outside their city trying to get into their city, and they are throwing a party like it's not even happening. 
They felt no threat from this guy. We're going to see his name as Darius, or some may say Darius. They felt no threat from him. They felt secure inside the walls of their city. And they definitely felt no threat from God, the God of the Israelites. They are taunting him. They're acting as if, A, he doesn't exist, or B, if he does, he is weak in comparison to our gods. We feel threatened by him, not whatsoever. So they bring out his cups of gold and silver, and they start using those for their own indulgences. And I would say as we live in kingdoms of this earth, that we can be lulled into a false sense of security as well. Particularly, I would say, when we are part of a strong earthly kingdom. Most of us, I believe, are probably citizens of the United States, maybe all of us that are here right now. And no matter what you think of our nation in general, I think we could all agree that we are in a place of stability on the world stage, at least, right? That we are not living under threat of war or of, uh, of foes who are coming against us actively. We are not nervous for our lives. We live a life of relative security. We don't feel a threat from earthly enemies. But I say that also leads us sometimes as individuals and as society to also feel no threat from God because we feel so comfortable and at ease in the kingdom of this earth that we forget that there is a God we must answer to, that there is a God who will judge us someday, that there are scales that we will be weighed in. We feel so comfortable in this life that we suppress the reality that we will be judged by God. But it is important for us to remember, and we see in Daniel 5, that all earthly kings and kingdoms are fragile and temporary. All of them. Babylon, United States of America. Every earthly king and kingdom is fragile and temporary, and every individual is as well. You are as well. You are fragile. Your life here on this earth and this life is temporary. And we must remember this. There's a reason that people in, in countries who have it worse off than us often take the things of eternity more seriously than we do. Because they know that they don't have things to grasp onto here. They don't feel comfortable here. They don't feel secure here. They're not buying into the false security that an earthly kingdom offers. But when we have some sense of security, we often forget that we're not secure on our own when we stand before God. That we're guilty. That we're found wanting in the scales of God's justice. But sometimes the kingdoms we're part of here, they offer us a false sense of security. And what we see in the life of Belshazzar and his friends, and even in our own, is when we have a false sense of security, often it leads us to be more tempted to indulge in the pleasures of this kingdom, to indulge in the pleasures of this world, of the right here and the right now. What we see in this text is that the kingdoms of this world, it's not just that they offer false security, but they offer fleeting pleasures. They offer fleeting pleasures. God made us as beings who long for security, right? But he also made us as beings who long for pleasure, who can enjoy pleasure, who seek it out. And Belshazzar and his friends are certainly doing that here, right? They're seeking out the pleasures of a party, the pleasures of wine, the pleasures even that they think they find in drunkenness. They're experiencing, I would say it this way, they're experiencing real pleasures, 
but they're experiencing fleeting pleasures. They're gorging themselves on wine. They, they are getting drunk. They are living lives of extravagance and gluttony, of excess. And I think it partly it was because they felt so secure. There's a phrase in Ecclesiastes where uh, the writer said that we could say this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I think Belshazzar and his friends, and maybe we're tempted to say too, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll be totally fine. Like we have nothing to fear. We can just indulge. We can enjoy, uh, get the experiences that we want in this life. And we can go after these real pleasures, but these shallow pleasures that just last for a moment, that just last for a night, that just last for an hour or two. They are fleeting pleasures. Hebrews 11.25 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Bible does not deny that there can be real pleasure in sin, real pleasure in the kingdom of this world, but what it challenges us is that those pleasures are not lasting. Those pleasures don't provide you the lasting uh, joy and peace and happiness that you long for. You know, I doubt that this was the first party Belshazzar hosted, and I doubt that he expected it to be the last. It was this fleeting pleasure that he was continually running after. And we can be that same way, can't we? As we just think about life in the kingdom here and now, the kingdoms of this earth, there's so many things that we run after for these quick hits of pleasure. That we think, man, that'll make me happy even if it's just for a moment. That'll give me some sense of, of joy or fulfillment even if it's just for a moment. But there are so many things we run after in this life, sometimes that we know are dishonoring to God, that do not truly satisfy us, that cannot truly satisfy us. They leave us just thirsting for it more and more. They leave us wanting and needing, like feeling like we need to come back to it over and over again. But we must not live for the, like, I think of like cotton candy. I like cotton candy, but as soon as you put it on your tongue, it dissolves and it's gone, and then you grab the next handful, right? That's like what the pleasures of the earthly kingdoms are like, that they're real, but they last for a moment, then you go and try to find again. The, the kingdoms of this earth, they offer fleeting pleasures, and you see it lived out with Belshazzar and his friends. The kings of this earth, the rulers of the kingdoms of this earth, they like to think of themselves as the heads of these kingdoms, as the ones who are the dispensers of these grand gifts. As if they think, man, what I have to offer you is a deal you can't resist. What I can give to you is where it's at. Like You need to take these gifts that I can give to you. But the kings of the kingdoms of this earth offer faux gifts. They offer cheap imitations. They offer, offer knockoff versions of the real gifts that God made us to be recipients of. And when Daniel, Daniel's offered these gifts, right? He's offered a purple robe, which would have indicated royalty. He's offered gold chains, uh, which would have indicated extravagance. Uh, and he's offered a seat at the table, a third seat at the power table of the kingdom of Babylon. And Daniel says, no thanks. Because he knows that these gifts, even though they're real, even though they might be impressive to the people around me, that they are just cheap, knockoff imitations compared to the gifts that the King of Heaven can give to me and that he will give to me. I don't need that. Stuff. And he knows that Belshazzar's kingdom is coming down. He knows it's coming down, and he's, saying, he's basically saying, you're writing checks, Belshazzar, that you won't be able to cash. I don't care if I get a third seat at the kingdom that you rule. It's coming down. 
And earthly rulers, earthly kingdoms, they can offer things like social clout. They can offer respectability in society. They can offer money. They can offer influence. But we must resist those temptations to just clamor for those things in the here and now that the rulers of this earth offer to us. Jesus himself said, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? We cannot just live for the here and now and just clamor for the gifts that the earthly kingdoms and kings can give to us. They're faux gifts. They are cheap knockoffs, like the cheap jewelry you buy out of a vending machine or the cheap sunglasses you can buy for a couple bucks. Uh, They are not the authentic, real gifts of God. Only he can give those. So what happened to Belshazzar? Read with me the last two verses of this chapter. After this party is, is held and the king goes ahead and gives the gifts anyways to Daniel... Verse 30 says, That very night Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Note this this is the fall of the great kingdom of Babylon, and it is given two sentences of air time. Two sentences. It shows how God esteems the kingdoms of this world. What happened here, note that it's not just that Belshazzar died that night, that just God just, maybe there was an accident or something, it's just a coincidence. No, he was killed that night. What happened, historians have filled in the picture for us in their writings uh, from the ancient world. What happened that night, while this party was being thrown in Babylon, this Darius was outside the city, and him and his troops, they dammed up the Euphrates River, imagine doing that, and diverted it momentarily. And then that river where it used to run under the wall of the city was a dry riverbed now, and they sent their troops under it, into the city that they thought was so secure, and they go find Belshazzar, and they kill him. The same night he's offering this party, thinking he's so secure that he's indulging himself, that he's offering gifts of the kingdom, God cuts him down. And it's not just that he dies, but the kingdom falls. It's not like that his son takes over, right? Or that even Daniel, who he just made third in power, takes over. No, the kingdom falls. The kingdom is given over to the ruler of another, Darius. So the king dies and the kingdom falls. The irony of that statement, O king, live forever, just rings in your ears when you, when you read this text. That that king could not live forever and would not live forever. But Daniel knew something. He knew that God had made promises that someday there would be a king whose reign would never end. Whose kingdom would never end. Who would have an eternal reign, an eternal kingdom And Daniel didn't know how all that would flesh out, but we do know how it has fleshed out. Because every kingdom has had kings that came and went and has been risen up to prominence and then been crushed or taken over or disintegrated. But there was one king who came who was different. And it was the King Jesus. Where Belshazzar and other kings were unrighteous and selfish, 
and indulge themselves. Jesus was a righteous king. Living not for himself, but living for others. Not lifting himself up against God, but humbling himself for our sake. And just like Belshazzar was killed by enemy kings, so was Jesus. Jesus was nailed to a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And he had been talking about this kingdom that he was hoping to start. And you could see how Satan and you could see how his enemies would tell him and tell his followers his kingdom never even got off the runway. He's died just like every other supposed king, every other uh, person who thinks that they're going to set up some kingdom. But Jesus was different because his death was different. His death was not judgment for his own sins. It was judgment for ours. In his death, he was doing something righteous and noble. He was giving himself up as a sacrifice for my sin and for yours. He was taking those sins that had weighed down our scale of guilt before God and had taken them on himself. And God the Father was putting him to death on the cross as a substitute for us. He was a king humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. And Jesus was making some proclamations as he was about to die, wasn't he? Belshazzar was making proclamations as he was about to die that he could never come good on. Jesus was making even bigger proclamations. He was saying, not just I'll give you a robe, I'll give you gold, I'll give you this and that. He was saying, I will raise you from the dead. I will return for you. I will forgive your sins. I will turn your sorrows into joy. And it could feel like when he was laid in the tomb that that could never come to be, that he, he just made these false promises. But God, the Father, raised him back up from the dead on that Sunday morning a couple of days later. And he raised him back up as the king of all. Not just some small kingdom like Babylon, but the king of the universe, the king of all people of all time. And he gave him a body that will never die. And he gave him a throne when he ascended back into heaven that has no threat, where he has no rivals. The reign of most kings ends when they die, right? But the reign of Jesus began when he died. That was when it was just beginning. And when he was raised from the dead, he was given a kingdom that would last forever and a kingdom, hear this, that you can be part of. You don't just have to settle for these small, fragile, weak kingdoms of this earth. You can be part of the kingdom of God that will last for all eternity. And not because you deserve it or have earned it, but because Christ has gained it for you and he offers you entrance. If you would turn from your sin and put your trust in him. And so I would call you to do that today. Don't lift, keep lifting yourself up like Belshazzar and clamoring after the things of this earth. But humble yourself in repentance and put your trust in that king who has been raised from the dead and who can raise you from the dead. And he'll receive you into his kingdom. And then we ought to live like we really believe we are citizens of that kingdom, right? I would say this, that it is only in the kingdom of Christ that you'll find the security that you long for, that you'll find the pleasures that you long for, that you find the gifts that you long for. It is only in the kingdom of Christ that you'll find those. He can give you eternal security that's unshaking, that's unquestionable. He can give you security with the judge of heaven and earth. 
He can give you pleasures that far surpass the pleasures of this earthly kingdom. He can give you pleasures that will last past the grave of fellowship with him, fellowship with his people, uh, experiences of love and of peace and of joy, of assurance, of sanctification, of being reconciled with God and reconciled with others. He can give you gifts and pleasures that the world can't even hope to offer to you. He can give you righteousness. He can give you a resurrected body. He gives you his Holy Spirit to live within you. Let's see a worldly king offer that. Uh, He can give you the security, the pleasures, the gifts that you long for. And we must live like that is true. The book of Hebrews 13 verse 14 says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Do you believe that? Here we have no lasting city. Not Babylon, not Washington, D.C., not Winona Lake, Indiana. We have no lasting city here. But there is a city that's to come. Someday, when Jesus returns, Revelation describes a city coming down from heaven to earth. Where they have gates that are all, it will have gates that are always open because there's no enemies and there's no threat. That city will come and we get to be part of it. If we are united with Jesus, may we not live for the earthly cities now, the earthly kingdoms now. I would ask you a few questions just to to inspect yourself before we close. Does your life demonstrate that you are looking for the city to come or that you're settling for the cities of this world and the kingdoms of this world? Do you delight in the things that are part of the eternal kingdom of God? Do you delight in things like knowing God himself? Do you delight in knowing God's spirit and knowing his son? Do you delight in hearing from his word? Do you delight in being with God's people? Do you work to advance the kingdom of Christ and to bring others into it? Do you tell people about him? Do you you share the good news of his death and resurrection with them so that they might become part of this kingdom? Do you use the finances and the time that God blesses you with to reflect that you value his kingdom or do you use them to build up your own? Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. Another question, how nervous are you? This is a timely question for this month. How nervous are you about the earthly kingdom that we're part of here? How nervous do elections make you? Or Supreme Court nominations make you? How excited do they make you? Those things will reveal if you are putting too much stock in the kingdom of this earth or if you are really putting your hope and security in the kingdom of heaven and the king who rules over it. And the last question I'd ask, I'd ask to those who are older among us to see if you, if your life is showing that you are longing for the city to come is how are you spending or planning to spend the final years of your life? I know so many older brothers and sisters, and I I want the Lord to protect me against this, who use the last twilight years of their life to get what they can from this world 
to enjoy the things that they can from this world rather than setting their sights to eternity saying, I want to do everything I can while I have breath to expand the kingdom of Christ, to be part of, of telling people about him and serving his people. Does your life demonstrate that you are looking for the city to come? You know, in interviews, a lot of times people ask, like, where do you see yourself five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe if they want to get really probing into your mind. But I would ask you an even bigger question. Where do you see yourself 10,000 years from now? And I'm serious about that. Like, where do you see yourself 10,000 years from now? Because you will be in one place or the other, assuming Jesus has returned by that time, which I hope and pray that he long since has. You'll either be part of the eternal kingdom of Jesus, this new earth that he has created, where there is no death, no destruction, no disease, no division, or you'll be in hell being judged for your sins. I would appeal to us to live life now in light of where we will be then. If, if you are destined to hell, you have not placed your faith in Jesus, let today be the day you see the writing on the wall and that you turn to that eternal king in repentance and faith and he will forgive you. And if, if you have already done that, if you've been received into his kingdom, live like you believe it's true. Like don't grasp for things of this earth, but live for the kingdom that is to come. And praise God that our King does live forever. Amen.